You're listening to the Christmas Eve and End of Hanukkah edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink Daily. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society. On this edition of The Close-Up, we'll listen to a conversation between Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross discussing their work on Gone Girl. David Fincher's Gone Girl, starring Rosamund Pike, Ben Affleck, Tyler Perry, and Neil Patrick Harris, is in the conversation ahead of next month's Academy Award nominations. So Gone Girl had its world premiere here at the New York Film Festival earlier this fall, and it was the opening night film. It is based on the successful bestseller and is a portrait of a recession-era marriage contained within a devastating depiction of both celebrity and media culture. Um, Ben Affleck plays Nick Dunn, whose wife Amy, who is played by Rosamund Pike, disappears and becomes the focus of a media circus when the tide of the 24-hour news cycle turns against him. He then quickly becomes a pariah in the eyes of the public who believe he's responsible for her disappearance. Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor and frequent collaborator Atticus Ross, who created the movie's fantastic score, recently took part in a conversation following a screening of the film at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. It was co-presented with The Hollywood Reporter. The two were both nominated for Golden Globe for Best Original Score, And the film is also nominated for Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay at next month's Golden Globes. They talked with Shirley Halperin from Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter about their collaborations, how they approach specific scenes, the way they work with David Fincher, and how their music for the movies differs from their work with bands like Nine Inch Nails. So let's listen to the conversation between Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross here at the Film Society. Atticus Ross, thank you for being here. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. First of all, congratulations. Golden Globe nomination today for Best Original Score. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are, you are racking up those nominations. Uh, Trent, you and Atticus have said that um, you don't initially start writing to picture but eventually picture makes its way in. So I'm kind of curious, how does the process change? If you could explain a a little bit about your process, how does the process change once picture is involved? Um, You know, we we got a call from David a few years ago for social network and um, very flattering phone call to get and I'd always been interested in seeing if I could compose in the medium of film but it hadn't hadn't uh, put a lot of effort into trying to focus on that because I've been working in my band Nine Inch Nails and it seems like the years keep flying off the calendar and I'm always in a cycle of either touring or recording an album so when we uh, when we agreed to work on social network um, I let David know. I said, I'm not familiar with the process of how one goes about composing for film. And he said, look, I'm going I'm to create a very uh, safe environment for you, a nurturing environment, and I know you have what it takes and what you, what you can do is what I'm looking for in this film, and I'll help you through the process. So we went and saw, well, Atticus and I 
sat through a maybe 45-minute uh, rough cut of Social Network several months before uh, it was released. Principal photography had been finished. Uh, there was some things still left to be filmed, but the, the film, you could tell what it was going to be. We'd read the script. We were familiar with the material. And we went home that day. We drove home kind of a state of panic of we're not sure how to approach this film because also it, that film, Social Network, um, rooms of people talking, um, there wasn't any room really for any, there wasn't room for a big theme to sit in there because it was a lot of act, a lot of just stuff already in there. And w we talked at length, Atticus and I, about what would be the best way to try to tackle this work. And what we wound up doing, I mean, we thought about, should we take a crash course? Should we call up our friend Hans Zimmer and see how, how you do it right? You know? um, is there a book we can read real quick you know, so we can bluff our way through this without being <laughs> called to the carpet? And then we thought, you know, there was a little bit of time to experiment. And we thought, what if we just do our process of composing um, and see what comes out, see how it turns out in terms of we'd absorb the material, we'd spent quite a bit of time with David trying to find out what he wanted for the film, what, what kind of role he wanted music to play, what it, try to extract clues about the type of instrumentation. Was he looking for a big orchestral piece? Was he looking for something minimal? Was it electronic? What was it like? And then we thought, let's, let's approach it just from a gut feeling and, and compose music that seems like it would belong in this world and, and would belong in the, in the kind of scope of what the characters were experiencing and thinking and feeling and what was the sound of creativity and social network was a lot of places where it felt like here's a guy chasing an idea that he felt was going to change the world and there's that momentum of trying to keep up with it and what does that sound like and what would that feel like? So... Bottom line is why, why I mention that is we discovered something that ended up working pretty well for us, which was to not think about specific scenes, not think about um, here's a 30-second passage that needs something to happen, um, but let's think about the whole film as a whole, and let's try to compose music that feels like it was it would dress the set of that space, you know, it, almost like set design, you know, what 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 feels like it to us, like it could belong in there. And let's go up, color outside the lines and take it two steps further in each direction to see what David might respond to. So we sent him, after a few weeks of composing, we were composing quickly, we sent him an hour and change of music to say, you know, treat these like swaths, just put them up on the wall, see if anything feels like it's in the right, in the right place. Is it in the right world? And we'll take that and we thought we'd do, you know, th several passes like that to hone in on a sound and a feeling to help him make the movie he's wanting to make. And after that first uh, batch went over, um, we talked and he was like, this is, I think the lion's share of the composing for what we can use in the film, you've done. And there's a rough cut I have to show some people at the studio. I'm going to do in the next week come by and check out how I've cut your music into this film, if, if you can stomach it. Okay, let's see what happens. And we went to the screening, and it was, um, it was a pretty, you know, something I'll never forget, because it was very roughly placed things, but it really worked. You know, and I'd say 
placement-wise, 60-70% of that is what's made it to the final cut in terms of rough blocks of stuff. Um, so to, to get to your point, after that, uh, which was really a revelation for us as composers, but also the filmmakers, where they, they were participating in, in how the movie was put together, and I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, then it became much more traditional, I think, in the sense of now we're filling in all the blanks, recomposing things to actually fit places where we, and when I say we, I mean Atticus myself, uh, David Fincher, the editors, Kirk Baxter, um, and also Ren Kleiss, sound designer. It was kind of this internal team of people that we were in, we were in uh, constant communication through the whole process. So from that first encounter to the dubbing stage where we're all sitting together talking about what we should pan where in the, th in the theater. And so it is a very collaborative process and we've, we've used essentially that same strategy on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and also Gone Girl. Um, we go into this project, Gone Girl, with, with a little more, probably a little less fear or a different flavor of fear. <laughs> and also the knowledge that we we really know that team. That's essentially the same team of people on David's side, and it is a. It's a. It's like a. It's like a band. You know, we all know each other. We all can be very honest with each other, and it is a collaborative experience, unlike any I've had in my, my day job. I mean, I think Trent said it all, um, and much like you quoting from before, I'll steal one of his that we've used. But it is that thing of building a world, you know, it's not, sometimes one can watch a film and it uh, feels like the music got put on afterwards. Um, with this, it's much more the foundation. It's not a splash of paint on the wall, starting with him right from the beginning. And there's a program called PIX, not to get too technical and boring, but it allows us to be in constant contact all the way through um, you know, literally daily, we're all seeing each other and ch changing and working for moving forward. So, going back to the social network, um, I mean, it won an Oscar for score, and it, it was a beautiful score that was piano based. Um, in Dragon Tattoo, you seem to be experimenting a lot more with different sounds that sort of gave off that wintry feel. And then with Gone Girl, it almost seems like another evolution in, in your composing. So just curious, how do you compose? Do you use traditional instruments? Are you sort of like messing around with the insane amounts of synths that you have in your home studio? How has that evolved from social network to today? Well, every pr we've worked together now for I forget every time I go to sales. <laughs> 20, 20 years, maybe, something like that. Mm -hmm. And every project we take on, we, we've done the last several Nine Inch Nails records, How to Stray Angels records, film projects together. Um, at the beginning of each project, we, we spend time trying to think about how this is different than anything else, how we can kind of create new rules, you know, new, new strategies for composition, new new ways to record, throw out things that become too familiar in hopes that we, that each project has its own kind of feel to it. Um, you can't help as you get comfortable with things to start to rely on things you know how to do. 
you know. And when we're in the studio and we're with a bunch of gear and maybe some other musicians at times, the quickest way is to reach for the thing that feels familiar, that you know how to do, and you know it's going to work a certain way, and you don't go down a blind avenue of spending 10 hours with a sound that sucks, you know, something that's uninspiring. And the danger, though, is then you repeat yourself and wind up in doing something familiar and safe. So kind of the process we've, we've done with the films, like it, it always starts with listening to, in this case, David. You know, really trying to get inside his head of what pictures he's trying to make. You know, and he he's thought deeply about this material, and he's enthusiastic, and he speaks in, in purposely vague at times to not to not leave too clear a picture, so because he wants what you bring to the table. And we really try to listen to what what it is he's trying to accomplish and get get across. Become very familiar with the material, and then leave our ego at the door and try to just disappear into what's what's the film sound like you know what's it what's it feel like um with gone girl it felt like you know we realized you were going to see various scenes from different perspectives um and something that might might appear safe and comfortable when you see it later in the film you realize that things have soured and we wanted to have themes we could repeat that could f sound familiar, but have a new, potentially dissonant or kind of um, unraveling element in there. So that that was a, a clue we thought about before we played anything. Um, we took the feeling, our, our interpretation of how it should feel, and then said we're not going to use any of these instruments, and we're not going to use any of these, and we're left with this pile here. Because they feel inspiring to us, and it feels like that kind of... I don't know how to explain it more than just from your gut. It kind of feels like that's what the movie should sound like. It should. Um, we don't approach things. This this may make sense and it may not because I'm making it up on the spot here. But uh, when we, when Nine Inch Nails started, there was a. It, it wasn't as acceptable to have electronics in a in a band. Rock band had guitars and real drums, and if you used a drum machine, it was cheating. And if you played with backing tapes, that was a cop-out because real rock had whatever they had. You know. <laughs> and I remember trying to explain that if I'm using a drum machine, it's not because I couldn't get a drummer to play it. It's because I like the sound of the machine. I like it to sound that way. It has, it has a, something about it that brought something to the table. Um, and that same philosophy has kind of applied itself to when we're in the studio, all I'm thinking about is how I can get the sound that's in our head into your ears. And if it's that computer there, which is just a tool, if it's that piano there, that's a tool. If it's a room full of um, musicians, that's a tool to to try to execute that that feeling. So that first phase, just boring myself right now, is just to try to... <laughs> Now. Try to figure out <laughs> how to get it here into there. So, got it. Um, well, David Fincher is a director who knows what he wants. You know, he has a very, very unique point of view, and his movies have a certain look to it. Um, Atticus, did he, what did he tell you in terms of guidance for Gone Girl? What were the sort of uh, you know things that that he put into your mind? Well, the thing about David is he's obviously a man of great intellect and vision but he isn't a micromanager 
So that first meeting that we had with him, he uh, he had this idea, and he he'd been at a chiropractor, and uh, they'd been playing some, you know, that kind of music where there's a waterfall, and and the idea, you know, one of the ideas explored in the movies facade of many different levels of facade and he had this idea and he referenced this band he'd actually managed to find this CD that he'd heard in the chiropractors um, but I, all I can say about it is when we looked for it it isn't even advertised on its own labels website it's of that kind of wow it's quality. embarrassing even to its own label. Some of some <laughs> some a couple of song titles. Uh, yoga was one. <laughs> so the idea was so uh, start with this. Ah, oh, you know, like it's you know the m mansion, the deer, you know, and then you've got the juxtaposition of the decay and whatever. That, like Trent said start with the facade and then bring in the weight and the uh, the curdling and the dissonance and and I think we explored various different you know areas that the film required um, but David is always present as a invigorating kind of sounding board and ideas person but it would be wrong to think that he, I mean, one time I had a conversation with him and he was paraphrasing Kubrick and he kind of said, you know, it's the thing of getting, you try and get a load of people that you think are really good at what they do and then let them be really good at what they do. And, you know, I've been in situations where that hasn't been the case. And um, it really is, you know, an incredibly rewarding experience when you get to work with someone like him. Okay, so I mean, Nine Inch Nails Trent is definitely not uh, a band I would ever put in the same sentence as Muzak, but there's an element in this movie of cheesy, new agey, backgroundy music that, like you just said, how difficult was it to embrace that? No, it, it was. It was interesting because you know when, when we're when we're fed that kind of starting point. It, it it sets us off at a place where we never, I think, would choose to begin. You know, and it also led to a certain tension creatively where the first the first good chunk of the movie is all about this facade and, and the movie isn't what you're, as the viewer, meant to think it is. It's not, it, it's not what it appears to be. And so there's a, there's a saccharine false sense of everything, even from the dread at the beginning is not, is a, is a red herring. So when you get to the point in the film where you're seeing what you're led to believe is an emotional exchange where um, they're, where he, she's saying they're running out of m money, you know, and you're seeing them being actually tender with one another and honest, and and we can actually now put an emotionally charged piece of music that that has an integrity, it has a a naked kind of. Um, emotional less about the facade more about you know actual feeling it's fun for us to get to that point where we can do it and then take it down a very dark and you know uh, unpleasant path <laughs> um, but it's 
you know what, what Atticus said just to expand on for a second to to work with someone like David where he he is not winging it you know he he is he is a genius you know he, and he's inspiring to be around and he's he's an impressive guy to collaborate with but at the same time he is um encouraging you and inviting you to push limits and he wants to see what you come back with because he he hadn't thought of that you know that you leave that process you know I, I look at these films we've done together as some of the best times I've ever had creatively where I leave saying that that was fantastic and I don't know if it's just the relief that I'm not the boss you know <laughs> or if it sucks I can say he it's his movie mm -hmm. you know <laughs> No, but really, you, you leave there feeling like, okay, that, that is, you know, I've learned a lot about collaboration and, and what's been so great about it and what I haven't really had a chance, other than working with Atticus over the years, um, to back and forth. Anyway. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask uh, about a specific scene, the party scene. And I want to bring up a story that The Hollywood Reporter did recently on Interstellar where there have been a lot of complaints that the actor's dialogue has been drowned out by the music. Um, it actually got to the point where uh, Christopher Nolan, the director, had to address it and say, actually, that's how I wanted it. Uh, he said, you know, this is an uh, adventurous, creative, experiential film, and I want to have that feeling. In the party scene in Gone Girl, there's a little bit of that volume uh, play, too, where you don't hear the conversations crystal clear. You feel like you're at the party. The, the piano goes up and then it goes down. Can you talk about that? I mean, is volume something that you have to concern yourself with when you're writing? Well, we're, we're mindful when we're writing for scenes to try to stay out of the way of the dialogue. And we do that in terms of the timbre of the instruments we use. Um, we often do it in terms of we have no music editor, it's just us. We we do every bit in the studio and then we sit in the, as much as they'll allow us in the dubbing stage at the end to kind of say how we think it should sit with dialogue and sound effects. And um, we, one of those people I mentioned, Ren Kleist, is the guy who does all the sound and sound effects. So while we're recording and while we're placing music, in orchestrating it, we're considering what the sound of the room tone is and trying to tune things so that the lines between film music and, and Foley and, and sound effects are blurred because it, you're hearing all of it. It's all going to sit together. Why not think of it that way? Um, in terms of, just to comment on the interstellar thing, I think it's their right as filmmakers to do whatever they want to do. You know, and we're in, we're in an age of clickbait where that becomes the narrative of the story is the, the scandal of, you know, to think for a minute that Nolan and Zimmer hadn't many, 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 many times made that a conscious decision, I think, is, is um, selling them short. You know, that's their right to do that. And in terms of Gone Girl, um, in that scene in particular, that was one where we were experimenting with we all wanted it to feel, and there's another scene where that happens too, when they first meet at the party, when they ride the elevator down and wind up in the sugar storm. There's a lot of experimenting about how loud the foley, or the sound of the walla in the room of everyone talking, and, and if you notice, it goes down as the scene goes on, because we were trying to make you realize that in this sea of people, these two people started to find each other, and as they did, the background noise tunes out, and 
hopefully the idea is that you subconsciously realize that they are just like in real life they're when you meet and connect with somebody the, the world tunes out uh, so we experiment with the sound in that um, same in the party scene that you're referring to with the Garson piano piece mm-hmm. um, you want no I, I the, f- the first you're talking about the first one where they first meet and it's the conversation about I was actually talking about the party scene where the cocktail party yeah where he proposes basically you need to listen closer to the question well, <laughs> <laughs> the pay attention Atticus there, there is a party <laughs> where they first meet yes and the and the sugar uh, which is a beautiful just, scene I just wanted to be clear yeah, yes but I mean Atticus do you are you aware of the sort of the volume issues that come up? And, and Trent, just to go back to the, the Christopher Nolan thing, I mean, that story became a story because people were right, commenting about it, um, asking, was this on purpose? You know, it's not like, you know, the Hollywood Reporter or whoever was digging for No, no I wasn't implying that, but I, I saw it where bloggers online were saying, oh my, you know, someone needs to get their hearing checked, and then it becomes a thing where we've 10 other people said it wasn't loud enough, and then you start to see it creep up. And, right. And, I and actually, and, and it's interesting, because Christopher Nolan actually explained that he went to six different theaters and listened in every single one, and it was almost like we still didn't believe him. We didn't believe that he, he did it on purpose. Well, because it makes for a titillating story to think that, you, you know. It. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but going back to, to these party scenes, which I think are really standout scenes, as is the one that, that you mentioned about their sort of emotional connection, because that scene, you can hear the chord change. You can hear their their thinking change, and the music goes along with it. And it's actually one of the only times in the movie where I really noticed the music, because usually the music is, you know, to the side, and it shouldn't get in the way. It wasn't loud enough. It, God damn it, the volume. <laughs> so... <laughs> Is it something that you guys talk about? Uh, I feel like it's going to be a story probably from here on out in future movies, you know, how loud the music is. No, I mean, we... When we're working in this way that I mentioned, using this program, the back and forth is we're working with the picture, we're sending quick times with the sound effects, with the dialogue, you know, there's considerations as we're writing, and then there's further considerations, you know, on David's end, like the party, he wants you to feel like you're in a party. Like Trent said, when it goes away, emotionally, you know, that's also where the orchestra entered at that point. Um, The cocktail party, which was a very clever idea of Trent's, that the, the cue turns into Mike Garson's interpretation of it on the piano. All, all those things, of course, are thought over and thought over and thought over and thought over. And, and in terms of placement of sound, Wren is great. We have found ourselves encouraging him, um, which he's excelled at, I thought, in this film. When you're in a cinema, you've got loads of speakers. Let's let's use them. It seems like you only hear it when the truck goes by, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's been one of the things of ours that was, you know, that you know when you compared to making a record where you've just got the two. Right. The tricky thing for us, what Attic was getting at, is when we get down to where the music cues are going to be, we're we're working and we'll we'll send 
here's four options back to David and his editor. Musically different things. And we'll say our preference is this one, but here's one if we went far that direction. Here's one if it was the other way, and here's something, whatever. But all those, when we, we burn them to just a stereo file and they watch it a, as a quick time movie with the music, and you hear the dialogue and everything else, and whatever state it's in at that point, but the music's louder than it's going to probably be in the end oh well. mix because that's what we're judging. You know, we're judging the music. But we get used to it at that volume. You know, now to us, the movie is you kind of hear someone talking, but there's great <laughs> music playing through the whole thing. <laughs> you know, so when we go to the dubbing stage, when it's going to be the actual mix, we have to mentally prepare for realizing that we're used to a film that, right. you know, it is 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 not really the way it's going to be, and that, and by the end, it sounds right to us, you know. And I think that, um, you know, the heartbreaking part is the composer is see the final cue, and what you agonized over is a truck went by and it, it's gone, right. you know, and it doesn't. It generally doesn't feel that bad at all when we you know there's there's times when yes naturally we want to turn a little thing up just for our own we you worked don't. on that you got to be able to hear <laughs> that thing that no one cares about you know but um it turns out pretty good you know we have a, we have a mal it's it's part of the teamwork of the same people have been working on it through this through the whole process so and that sound editor has been working with Fincher for like 20 years, yeah, right? Yeah, he's great. Rin, yeah. And it, well, Hidden, it, he mixes it as well. Beyond okay. just doing the sound design, he is actually the guy who mixes the film. And he's done all the ones that we've done together. I think they've all been great. And I think Gongo in particular sounds awesome, in my opinion. Great. So you guys found your, your stride. Um, all right, we're going to take a couple of questions from the audience, if there are any. Anybody's left. I see a few. Okay, we got a microphone, so hang on. Okay, go for it. After working on these scores, after doing something that's softer and more pensive like this, do you feel like you need to turn around and pick up guitar and record another Nine Inch Nails album? You're gonna go balls out? And uh, is there any chance we're gonna get another How to Destroy Angels album? Yeah, it does kind of get cyclical in the sense that you, you know, when we finished uh, a year of Dragon Tattoo, you notice the pendulum wants to swing the other direction into something more aggressive. You know, I just gotten off a year and change of touring, so while I did Gone Girl, and I'm not sure what it confused me because it's mellow on one and screaming every night and every other week it was kind of that way. So I'm, I just need a couple months to recharge. But we would like to do another House of Angels record. We're going to work on a new Nine Inch Nails record. Um, just trying to. Uh, collect myself and you know what I've learned over the years is to try to what am I trying to say that sounded smart right now uh, look for the clues of inspiration you know and try to uh, have your antennas up and not get too bogged down into planning out what the next thing is and, and listen to that incentive that makes this path seem more exciting than that path you know and be open to noticing when you start to go that way so i'm in that, that phase right now of kind of catching my breath and feeling motivated but there's no clear roadmap of what the exact next thing is right now that in some ways answered my question so i'm going to change it really quickly um if you were to imagine yourself um destitute let's say 
Um, <laughs> and you had to make a score for your friend's movie. Let's say you just had iPhones and some old equipment. What do you think you would use to make it? What would you, what instruments and tools would you use? Well, we did year zero on the back of a tour bus for the most part on a laptop. I mean, I don't know if that answers the question, but. No, I think there, there's, we've really learned that um, limiting your options can be a very inspiring thing. And we do that to some degree on every project we do. There, there's a tipping point where it probably isn't fun and it's just frustrating. But um, you know, often we have option anxiety because we've spent our lives collecting this room full of stuff, you know, an exotic thing that does this one thing great. And then you sit in that room and you look and it's, you're not sure where to start because there's infinite amount of places to start, you know, so limiting options, you know, creating rules, making yourself work a certain way, initially feeling uncomfortable, I think has great value in terms of, um, from, for us, sparking an idea that you wouldn't have come up with left to the comfortable way to do it, so. It must have been hard to switch gears. You were both on tour. While no. Gone Girl was... No, 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 no. You weren't on with Nine Inch Nails? No, no, He no. was napping. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I was working on the film. Oh, you were working on Gone Girl? Got it. Trent, was, was it hard to switch gears, being on the road and then having to focus on the movie? Yeah, the story what happened was um, we finished Dragon Tattoo. Um, we'd been working on the How to Strangers record and Nine Inch Nails record. Finished it. Talk of a tour came up. Before I'd even entertained that idea, I reached out to David to say, what's your plans? Because if you'll have me, this is what I want to do. And at that time, he was going to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and that was supposed the work that we would do on that would be starting right now because that had a much longer lead time. So we booked a tour. Tour went on sale. Get the phone call. Hey, guess what? I'm not doing that film anymore. I'm going to do Gone Girl, and it's going to start two months into when your tour is in full gear and the work for that would need to be done exactly when your tour finishes you know so it was uh, I either would have to pass on the film or figure out a way to do that in the midst of a tour and we talked long and hard about how we could there would be a two week break every six weeks or so and so every, this day we get back from tour, I get back from tour, we'd start in the studio, work for a condensed, very focused two to three week period, then be away from it for six weeks, then come back and do the same thing for three, three chunks of that. And it was, um, you know, this is probably now justification, but it, during the time it was, I was I was in anxiety mode, you know, and he, he actually yelled at me a couple times because I've I always feel like I need to work harder at things. You know, I can make up for any in, insufficiencies I have by just working harder than anyone else, and I couldn't this time because I, there was only so much time I could actually do it. And we like we don't take on five projects a year. We we do a limited amounts so that we can immerse ourselves in it and put every ounce of creativity into it. And this time I felt like if I need more time, I don't have it, this, you know. And anyway, the justification part is I think when we got to the end, it felt like 
this is really we really feel good about and, and we don't say that we don't sit around saying wow what a great job we've done you know <laughs> and we're both kind of wired to always feel like it's not good enough but at the end of this it felt like this really turned out we're really proud of it you know and i think part of it was the objectivity we had where we we didn't go crazy where we couldn't go crazy and work every minute for six months and being able to get away from it and come back with a fresh set of ears and you know, very wary of the clock ticking and what needed to get done by what time. It kept us focused, and so. Also, we did have this last, the last break Trent had was nearly six weeks. So we'd have these initial two to three week ones, and then we did get this six week chunk at the end. And for me, I mean, I've loved all of the ones that we've done in terms of in the studio. But I, I, I feel, and this isn't justification because I wasn't on tour, that this on Gone Girl was felt the most, in some ways, the most experimental and in intensely creative, partly because of this time restriction. But, you know, I, I, I love the writing on this one, the actual being in the studio bit. Okay, the anxiety worked out. Yes, in the back. Hi, Shirley. Hi, Steve Bloom. Uh, hello there. Um, a question I have is um, the song selections. Is that part of your job? You know, there's Don't Fear the Reaper and you know a bunch of other songs. Is that part of your job to pick out songs that fit as well? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't have anything to do with that on this one. Did you know that there was going to be, like, those pop songs in there? That Well, we we hear them in the... Like he was mentioning on picks, we we can see the latest version of everything, and we're focused in on the chunks where we're actually composing pieces of music. But we'll notice that every once in a while something will change out towards the end, or what I'm used to hearing a certain thing and it's switched out. But that's not anything that we were in charge of. That's more the music supervisors' gig, right? Rather it's than the, the not composer. our gig. The not our gig. Good, good answer. I think it's David and Ren who do it. One more question. The microphone is running to the back. Okay, there you go. Hi. Oh, sorry. Um, do you think you'll continue to compose for other directors, or do you want to stick with the, the perfect storm of everybody together and you've worked so well on, on three projects so far? Well, Atticus is doing a lot of interesting stuff with other people, and I don't know what you can Character say or share. not about that, but I'll leave the door open if you'd like to. But I'd, I'd love to work with uh, this team as much as they'll have me. I, I want to stay working with this team as much as they'll have me. Okay, one big happy family over here. Or somewhat melancholy family. Um, okay, <laughs> thanks, guys, <laughs> for coming. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.